listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love to send you to Joshua chapter 2. So we are we kind of jumped ahead last week, and we uh, kind of began the Advent series a little a week early. And if you were here last week, you know it was a very interesting day, uh, as we talked about a woman named Tamar. And we have titled this series, Surprising Grace. And we've done that for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you find Jesus' family tree. But in that family tree, he lists, his genealogy, five women. But the surprising thing is, is that these are not five women that we would typically think about, or even the patriarchal mothers, the women you often hear about in the line of Jesus, such as Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. In fact, Matthew chooses five women that actually begin outside the people of God. He begins with four women that are foreigners. In fact, two Canaanites, a Moabite, a Hittite, and then this young woman named Mary. And so he does this surprising thing about picking some women that naturally we would not think would be brought up or that they belong. And so last week we went to Genesis 38 with Tamar. And if you were here, you remember it is a crazy crazy story. And if you've got a messed up family, you have nothing on Tamar. In fact, her, what we saw from her, do you remember the story? Married, dies, married again, dies, does something strange, father-in-law, baby, that thing. But the thing was, we saw from her, her only hope, the only hope that she had was a son. In fact, only a son could redeem her. I mean, the same thing is totally true with us, that Our only hope is in a son, and only a son, the Son of God, could save us. And Tamar was a foreshadowing of that. And we saw that Tamar, in a strange turn of events, God uses Tamar to preserve the line of Judah. But that we saw from her, as checkered as her past was, this was kind of the thing that we're going to talk about every single week leading up to Christmas. That God sees not just who you are, but who he's making you to be. I mean, that should be something we're thankful for every day. That Man, I'm so glad God doesn't just see who I am, but who he is making me to be. So we're going to go right in line today. We're going to go to the second woman in this genealogy. So if you have your Bibles, Joshua chapter 2, the sixth book of the Bible, pretty easy to find. Uh, Genesis, just kind of ahead, keep turning. You'll quickly be in Joshua. So we saw from Rahab, it was all about hope. Her only hope was a son. Only a son could redeem her. But from Rahab, we're going to see that she was actually a woman of faith. So Tamar, a woman of hope. Rahab, a woman of faith. But before we do that, think about this, that our world, especially this time of year around Christmas, our world is consumed with labels. In fact, companies use labels all the time. If you turned on the TV yesterday to maybe watch a football game, that labels are used to communicate all kinds of messages. And what they hope happens is that you hear a label and you think of them. 
trying to create this familiarity. Like this, I'll give you a test. You'll probably make a hundred. What am I thinking about when I say just do it? Nike. All right, eat fresh. Subway. Now, this is kind of a blast from the past. Bet you can't eat just one. Lay's potato chips. Here's one. There are some things that money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. So see, labels are used to communicate. They want to create a familiarity that when you hear it, you think of them. You know, you and I, we also have these labels. Some of the labels you have, you really want to be known for. I'd call these kind of labels of pride. Things that we hope people think of us. This is what they would think of. You know, like, oh, that's Mr. Consistency. Or maybe, oh, that right there, man, that's misreliable. Oh, you know that guy down there? Man, he is Mr. Fix-It. Nothing that guy can't fix. Or you think about some woman, you go, oh, she, that is Miss Hospitality. She just makes everyone around her feel welcomed. Or, you know, man, that guy right there, man, Mr. Successful. You want to know how to grow a business, how to be successful? That's who you need to go talk to. Or every mom might think, you know what, that's the mom right there. I'd love to be known as the mom that's got everything under control. Wow, if she was my mom, or I hope I can be a mom like her. So we all have these labels, these labels of pride that we kind of hope that we're known for. But don't we also have labels that either we don't want people to know or people know this about us and we hate it. We wish it wasn't that way. Maybe these could be labels of shame. You know, Mr. Can't Keep a Job. Mismaterialism, as they might think of someone. Oh, that guy down there, you know, that's just Mr. Divorcer. I mean, he can't get it right. What about, oh... Yeah, that lady down the street there. Yeah, I mean, her kids are so out of control. We don't want to be known that way. Oh, that guy, who hope you never cross paths with him. Man, that's just Mr. Anger. Or you know what, boy, be careful what you say around her because, man, that's just Miss Gossip. So we have these labels. Some of them, labels of pride, we want to be known as. But don't we also have labels that sometimes are public and people know this about us and we hate that? Man, we can't hide from it. I wear this label of shame and everybody knows. But we also have these labels that then no one knows about. And we hope that nobody ever finds out and we don't get labeled in that way. So this morning we're going to look at a woman that she wears many labels of shame. She can't get away from it. She can't hide it anymore. It's out there and people know it. She cannot escape these labels of shame. So you're in Joshua. I think I said two. Let's back up to one. I want to kind of set the stage for what's about to happen. I know it's a familiar story. You, many of you have heard this story before. But let's kind of back up and kind of set the stage for what we're about to see. So beginning in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this, that after the death, of Moses, the servant of the Lord, or the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun. So we're kind of getting the players in place. He's Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I'm giving you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, 
upon I've given to you, just as I promised Moses. So Moses died. Joshua is now the new leader of this strange group of people called the Israelites. The Lord tells Joshua, now's the time. It's time for you to finally cross this Jordan River and to take the land, conquer the land that I've promised you. But if you remember back 40 years ago, the same declaration was made to to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 1. God told Moses, he said, it's time to conquer the land. I've prepared this land for you. I want you to go and to take it. So what does he do? He sends out 12 spies. Two come back and they say, you know what? They're big, they're powerful, but let's trust God. But ten of them say, no, they're too big, they're too powerful, the army's too big. There's no way we could do what God is telling us to do. And so Israel is afraid. So because of the lack of faith, God sent them to the wilderness. And for 40 years, they're wandering around. Because God is preparing them for this time. So 40 years later, God tells them again, listen, it's time to conquer the land. But will they have the faith this time? Skip to verse 13. He says, remember that word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock, they shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also will take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and you shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of God gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So this is their answer. This is what they will now say 40 years later. All that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, Joshua, we are going to go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, even though that was a lie, we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. So Israel says, okay, we are now ready to step out in faith. We're going to conquer the land. But before we read what happens, I'm going to kind of go through this story. I want to kind of show you the structure of Joshua chapter 2 because it, it, when you begin to understand the structure, it's going to bring, I think, a lot more understanding and appreciation for what happens because we read this familiar story and we kind of come at it, I think, from a different angle. If you were to, the first time ever, to pick up this Bible, or let's say this chapter 2 was portrayed in a movie, you would see it very differently, because we quickly jumped to Rahab. But if you're reading this for the very first time, you would see this from the eyes of the spies. Because in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it's all about the spies. You know, the movie trailer comes up, or the previews are over, the stage is set, these spies are going to go into hostile territory. You know, they're the Born series, and they're going to go in. Are they going to be found out? Well, if you follow a movie plot, then in verse 15, 
It's all about, will the spies escape? They've been discovered. The tension is there. Will they make it out alive? But right in the middle, in verses 8 through 14, there's almost, there's this break that happens in the storyline. And so I want us to follow that same structure this morning. So the stage is set. We know 40 years earlier, this promise was made, go conquer the land, I've given it to you, and they run in fear. But now 40 years later, Joshua's the leader, the same declaration, go conquer the land. They say, yes, we will. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, he sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies. Be careful with that one. It's Shittim. They sent two spies out. Not 12, but two, saying, go view the land, all of it, especially this city of Jericho. So let me show you what's happening. So they are on the eastern side of the Jordan River in Shittim. And if you were to travel only about 12 to 13 miles to the west, you are in Jericho. In fact, from Jericho, you can see the Jordan River. So you're in this city. If you're in Jericho, you could see all that is happening. You can see the Jordan River. So they're in Shittim. They're on the east side of the river. But the river at this time, it's the springtime. The river has swelled from all the rainwater. It's kind of keeping the enemy at bay. It was a natural wall. So two unnamed spies, we're not told who they are, they go out. And then continue verse 1, it says, And they went, and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. But we are not told how in the world do these spies connect with this woman Rahab. But think about it. If she is a prostitute, also that word can be used a lot of times to talk about somebody that would kind of um, have like an inn where travelers would come. So this could be a place where foreigners would come and they would not be looked about as something strange of visiting this type of woman. But somehow, God brings them to Rahab. What we're going to see is that God has been preparing her for this moment, just as he was preparing Israel to enter into the land for the last 40 years. Look at verse 2. And it was told to the king. So they make it in. They come to this woman's house, Rahab, who's a prostitute. And the king hears that they're in the city. He's behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman came, who had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and she hid them under the stalks of flax. And they had laid in order on the roof. So the men, they pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the king hears these foreigners are 
in his city that are coming to spy on them. But another interesting thing about this, just as the spies, they come into contact with Rahab, and we have no idea how, this king, he hears this, and he has full authority to bust in and to search her entire house. But all he does, it says that he inquires. Are they here? She says, no, they must have gone out before the gate was closed. You better hurry, and you might catch them. He simply questioned her. And can't you see God's hand kind of already working in these people's lives? All right, so let's see then, how does the story unfold? You can see the tension. The spies are there. They're hidden. They've been discovered. Will they go up on the roof and find them laying there? She tells them this story. They are going to begin to pursue them in. So now skip to verse 15 to follow the plot. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And he said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. And hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that we have made us swear. Behold... When you come into the land, you shall tie this cord into your window, the one which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of these doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. But if the hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed, and they went into the hills, and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers, they searched all along the way, and they found nothing. And the two men, they returned. And they came down from the hills, and they passed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. So after the king's men, they come in and they search. They climb down on that scarlet thread, and they, they leave the city. But the question is this, is that why would Rahab... This Canaanite prostitute, why would she do this? What was it about her? Because do you see her label? Everyone knows when you would talk to Rahab, oh, that's the harlot. So Rahab the harlot, why would this Canaanite harlot help these men? What does she possibly have to gain? She has everything to lose, but what would she gain? You see, it's because God has been at work in her life. Rahab has experienced how surprising God's grace really is. Because right in the middle of this plot line of this story, you read the change that happened with her. You read the change. So let's look back up now to verse 8. So this is why, this is what has happened to Rahab. 
She says, before the men laid down, before they hid under this, these reeds, she came up to them on the roof. So they're hiding. Before they kind of get settled, she then makes this declaration. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Past tense, this land is yours. He's already given it to you. And that the fear of you, it has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants in the land melt away before you. So 40 years ago, do you see the reversal? The 40 years ago, it was Israel that was melting away in fear. And now we see, Rahab says, it's all of those that are living in Jericho. They are afraid of you. So she continues in verse 12 or 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan and Shahon and Og whom you devoured and you devoured to destruction. So she recounts what she's been hearing about this God of the Hebrews, the, the God of Israel. She's remembering how he parted the Red Sea, how he protected them, brought them out of slavery in Egypt. She talks about hearing about what they did to the kings of the Amorites. But then we get, I believe, the most amazing declaration in all of the Old Testament. And it's because of who brings it. So she makes this, this declaration, but remember, this is not an Israelite who would have grown up being taught the Torah. She didn't grow up studying it. She's not a Jewish person that had experienced God's faithfulness that would have been taught to her generation after generation. She didn't know what it was like to be in slavery and watch God redeem you. She didn't have any of those experiences to go on. It's someone who doesn't even belong to God's chosen people. This declaration is from a Gentile Canaanite prostitute. Someone who was way outside of God's covenant people. But this is what she says in verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And here's where she says it. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she at this moment professes, listen, I've grown up a Canaanite. We worship all kinds of gods. More gods than you can even count. But I'm now saying there is only one true God, and He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God in heaven and on earth, and there is only one. And in this moment, she publicly denounces her Canaanite false gods. You know, it's so interesting that this phrase, the God in heavens above and on earth beneath, it is only used three times previously. You find two of them attached to the giving of the Ten Commandments, but she had probably never heard those phrases before. 
And when we read these words coming from Rahab's mouth, the one that wears these labels of shame, she is acknowledging that God, the one that she has heard about, is the one true God. And now, she says, He is my only hope. Somehow, in some way, she comes to faith in the one true God against all circumstances. So then she asked these spies, she says, I want you to make an oath. I want you to swear to something. It says in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, will you deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save and keep alive my father my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, if you keep it a secret, and when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab, she has faith in the one true God. And she now, is what she's doing, she is seeking refuge among his people. But think about what then has to happen next. The spies leave. And all Rahab can do, all she can do is wait. She, all she can do is trust that these Hebrew spies, that they will keep their word. And that the God of Israel that she now professes, that he's going to come through. So the Hebrew spies and the God of Israel, the spies return. They go back to uh, Joshua and they tell him what happens. So let me remind you now how the story ends. In fact, if you want to in your Bible, you could turn to Joshua 6. But just remember, Rahab is now waiting. So Israel, they finally cross the Jordan River. The Ark of the Covenant is brought forward, and as soon as those priests' feet hit the water, the water parts, and they cross over. And from Jericho, you would be able to see this. And then they stop, and they observe Passover. I mean, can you imagine Rahab's test of faith? She had to be thinking, what are they doing? I don't know if I can keep this a secret much longer. Everybody's asking questions. Why aren't they coming like they said they would? But then one day, she wakes up and she sees them coming and approaching the city. She finally has to be thinking, finally, today is my day of deliverance. I'm going to see this God of Israel do what only he can do. And as they're walking, she hears nothing. They approach the city. And they walk around those walls in complete silence. She's got to be thinking, what in the world are these people doing? But imagine her test of faith as she watches them then walk about six miles away from her city. And they stay in Gilgal. And they camp there. She had to be thinking, what? Are they going to do what they said they would do? This, I put all my eggs in this one basket of this Hebrew God. Will they come through? Day two, she wakes up and the same thing. They walk, it's quiet, they don't say a word, and then they leave. 
Day three, day four, day five, day six, the same thing. Day seven wakes up. They come and they march around. And Rahab to be thinking, okay, here they come. They're almost around. They're going to pass that wall, and they're going to go on to Gilgal. Have no idea what they're doing. But then she watches. All of a sudden, they don't turn north. They beginning to turn back west, and they walk around that city a second, and a third, and a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. And on that seventh time, to her amazement, the people shout, and they blow their trumpets, and it says the walls begin to fall down. And then in verse 24 of chapter 6, it says this. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. But Rahab the prostitute, notice her label of shame again. And her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. So here's what is so surprising about God's grace is Rahab, she stands for everything that threatens Israel. If Israel has a kryptonite, Rahab sums it up. One, a strong and powerful woman. Abraham, problem. Jacob, the problem for him. David, he fell to that. Samson fell to that. A strong woman, it threatened them. But she's also a prostitute, symbolizing total immorality. And we see that, that threatens God's people. They are to live differently than those around them. And she's also a Canaanite, standing for the false worship of all the other false gods. And so Rahab, she stands for everything that threatens Israel. But in her confession, note this, Rahab, she says the words that Israel should have said 40 years ago. She has the faith that Israel should have had 40 years ago. And God uses her to fulfill his promise of giving Israel the land. Everything that threatens them, that's who he uses to bring about his promises. God uses a Canaanite prostitute. Because, you know, God can use people that we think could never be his servants. And so we see from this story the, the power of simple faith. She didn't grow up with all the advantages of knowledge of an Israelite. She didn't have that. She wears all kinds of labels of shame. Yet she comes to believe in the one true God. And God uses her to save his own people. But notice that God did not only use Rahab to save Israel. God uses Rahab to make it possible to save you and me. Do you know what happens after they leave Jericho? It says that she begins to live among the Israelites. When Jericho falls, Rahab is brought into God's covenant people as an outsider. In fact, she meets a man named Salmon, or you could say Salmon. She meets him. You know what? He's one of the men that took the census years ago when they counted the Israelites. And they have a son 
named Boaz. And Boaz, he had a son named Obez. And Obez has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And 24 generations later, Jesus is born from the line of David that flows all the way back to Rahab. And so here's what's so amazing. Rahab's declaration of faith, it truly is an act of God's surprising grace. Because here you have Rahab. She's an outsider of Israel, a stranger to God's covenants and his law. She doesn't know these things. She not have the advantages of growing up, hearing about God's law and even following his ways. But she has been brought up in this immoral and evil customs of the day as a Canaanite. She was a sinful Gentile outside the covenant mercies of Israel. Rahab by no means deserved to be saved. But God had mercy on her. And if ever a sinner experiences surprising grace, it had to be Rahab. But you know, when we think about it, we're really not much different than her. Just like Rahab, not originally a part of God's family, but a part of a corrupt and sinful society. That's us. Just like Rahab, we hear, hear about God's mighty deeds in his word. But then Rahab experienced God's surprising grace, and she seeks to find refuge in him. And the beauty is that we can experience the same surprising grace today. And so when you read about this incredible story of Rahab in Joshua 2, hopefully we see the truth. You know what? God not only sees who we are, but who he's making us to be. And Rahab is another incredible example of that. But you know what? It's also true of you, and it's true of me. He doesn't just see who we are. He sees who he's making us to be. So let me show you one other amazing thing about this story. There are these labels that could be given to people of the Bible, but we don't see people in this life. You know what you could say about Abraham? Oh, the father, Father Abraham, you read the song and you've done that growing up. You know what his label could be? Selfish liar. I mean, twice he lies about who his wife is to save his own life. You take Jacob, man, the patriarch Jacob. He's a deceiver. He deceived his father with Joseph. He deceived his daughter-in-law. Think about Gideon. Man, he could be known as the coward hiding up in the cliffs. David. Man, he could wear that label of shame of an adulterer, murderer. That could be his label, but you never... You never see them referred to as those labels. You don't. But with Rahab, it's totally different. Did you know that every time Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, you have to come face to face with her label? Let me read them for you. James 2, verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab, and look at her label, the prostitute. Justified by works when she received the message and sent them out another way. Hebrews 11.31 By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given, uh, been friendly to welcome in the spies. 
she is always referred to as Rahab the harlot. But because of her simple faith, because of what she heard in that declaration, that no longer is her label of shame, but instead it is meant to be a billboard of how surprising grace is. Because it isn't Rahab, oh, the prostitute. It's remember who she was. But look at what God has done with her. So if you're like me this morning, I know you have some labels of shame also. Some of them, you can't hide and people know it. Others, you're just hoping that no one ever finds out about that label. But I want to read her declaration one more time. Because here's the truth. These no longer have to be labels of shame that we hide behind. Man, they can be billboards of God's grace that look at what He has done in my life. Yes, that is who I used to be. But because of what He has done in my life, look at what He is doing in my life now. That only God can take that label of shame and turn it to a billboard of God's grace. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So I want to close with asking you a question. Do you have a declaration of faith? Do you have something that quickly summarizes who God is and what he has done? So I want to give you some homework. I want to encourage you with something this morning. In your bulletins or on that back table, There's a sheet of paper. Me and the other teaching pastors, Ross and Eric, we got together this week when we were studying this story. We said, you know what? We need a declaration of faith, and then we want to encourage our people to do that. So we've listed ours. Man, go into taking and make one your own. Write down who God is and what he is to make it something you can easily remember. Because in all of that, it's God knows not only who you are, but who he's making you to be. And those labels, they no longer have to be labels of shame, but billboards of God's surprising grace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.